Okay, gang, here we are back in Ecclesiastes. And um, I think it's uh, a very interesting book, and I know that everyone has a lot of curiosity about it. And um, I think that's okay. that's an okay thing. We can turn that curiosity into, into a measure of faith. Let's do that as we uh, look at the book. Um... The last two messages have been more or less an introduction, and um, we did spend quite a bit of time in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1, and uh, kind of got the tone of the book. Um, we also looked at the uniqueness of the book and some of its history. Um, we also um, gave an outline for the book, and then we... Um, examined the faith of the writer, the author, um, looked at some of the evidences in the book itself of the author's faith. And in connection with that, we then explored the possibility that th this was uh, actually Solomon who wrote it. Uh, I think the church, evangelical church, has for a long time believed uh, that, it, that it's Solomon. Um, and I think I uh, recommended to you a passage where you can get a really good look at uh, Solomon's heart, whether he wrote this or not. Um, you can get a good look at his heart in the book of Kings, 1 Kings, in chapter 8, where he gives this long prayer. It's something like 50 verses. This long prayer at the dedication of the temple. Um, there is another prayer also, uh, before that one, in 1 Kings chapter 3, where he prays a, a, a sh much shorter prayer, which is just before he gives his first decision as a king. And I believe there's a connection between that prayer and the decision, and it's a good thing to, to look at that. In any event, they are good uh, places to see the heart of Solomon. We uh, also um, took time to examine what under the sun means, and we concluded that it can mean some various things, but the most fitting with the text is probably the Old Testament way to say this world or this age under which uh, we live, so to speak. We also spent some time looking at the title, where it came from, and in connection with that, of course, we briefly looked at the Septuagint. That is the um, basically 300 A.D. Um, translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And so let's... Uh, Let's go on now, and uh, we're going to get go beyond verse 11 now. And now we're getting in into some deep water. We're going to jump into some deep water. But before I do that, I want to remind everyone that um, although we're going to read some seemingly very negative things, negative-sounding things at any rate, um, I want to show you something in chapter 8, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. In addition to our looking at the faith of the writer and the faith of Solomon, 
um, and also the downfall of Solomon. Um, but as far as his faith or the writer's faith, look at, at chapter 8 with me, uh, verse 12. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well with those who fear God and fear him openly. Now this is an interesting verse because Solomon is affirming the better state of the believer. The believer has an advantage over the unbeliever, he says, which seems in contradiction to what he has said in various places in the book, which we haven't looked at yet, but I'm just warning you ahead of time that it's all too easy to misread, and I'll make a point of this as we go, to misread some statements that the writer will make and not see their context, not see the conditions and the context in which they were said. Okay. Um, there's something else I want to do before we get started, and that is remind you that this book could be called a riddle. Yes, a riddle. Um, and there are, in fact, seven pieces to this riddle. And we actually have already looked at one. We've already seen one. Um, but let's go ahead and revisit it. Actually, I'm not sure we read this, but we did, we did talk about it uh, in, the, in the last uh, message. But in chapter 1, in chapter 1, um, you know, verses 1 through 11, he's making the case for man's impermanence and man's um, just, you know, he flits in and off the scene while all of nature, all of creation, the rest of, of, of his environment, his life, is, is stationary and stoic and unchanging and really doesn't leave an imprint of man. He just comes and goes, comes and goes, comes and goes. And he's, he's making that case to basically say that there's something wrong with life. There's something wrong with a human condition. And you'll recall in one of the previous messages that we linked that thought to Romans 8, uh, verse 20, where Paul says the same thing. Paul says that subject to the fall, God then put all of creation, including man, under a kind of a special project. He, God took the fall, and he said, okay, I'm going to make this into something that will actually be useful, and he made it into a project. And that project, Romans 8.20 tells us, it says that God subjected the world to futility. Futility. And at the end of that verse, it says, in hope. Well, that is what Solomon, is, Solomon, or the writer of Ecclesiastes, is getting at in verses 1 through 11, that the world is kind of futile. It's pretty futile. And what he's going to do, um, and let's go ahead and jump there to verse 14, chapter 1. I have seen all the works... That is, all the activity, all the, all the scurrying around that man does, which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What is he saying? 
he's saying that life is broken, which we we already know he's been saying. We already know that that's been his his opening theme, his opening uh, statement. Well, that's the first. That idea that life is broken is just the first of seven things he's going to say, and those seven things make up the riddle that is the book of Ecclesiastes. And the neat thing about it is he's actually going to tell us all seven uh, by the time we get done with ver- with chapter 3. And so the rest of the book, um, actually starting in chapter 5, the rest of the book will basically be telling us what to do in response. What should be our response? What should be our, um, you know, our, our um, response to what God has done in purposefully making the world a puzzle, a riddle. So let's jump in and, uh, <clears throat> and read. So we'll do, uh, starting at verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12, and we'll read uh, 2.18, verse 18, and we'll stop, and then we'll read chapter 2, the whole chapter 2, verses 1 through 26, and we'll stop, and that'll be uh, the thing for today. So verse 12, chapter 1. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after wind, because, verse 18, in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. So what is he, what's he doing there? Well, he's actually given us two more pieces of the riddle, the puzzle. But let's, let's, uh, let's take it uh, slow. So he's already told us, before, before verse 12, verses 1 through 11, that life is broken. And now he's saying that um, I tried to figure this out. And he, and, he, and he says in verse 15, what is crooked, that's the brokenness. Later on he'll call it bent, you know, something being bent. So whether it's broken or crooked or bent, you see, the, you see the idea. What is crooked cannot be straightened and what is lacking cannot be counted. He says, I tried to decode this situation. I tried to reverse engineer this brokenness. And he says it can't be done. He, he says it can't be done. He goes on, and I set my mind to know wisdom, verse 17, and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after when, verse 18, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. He's not saying ignorance is bliss. If you just take that verse by itself, you could come up with a dozen different things that are all incorrect. They're, they're, they're not right. What he's saying is, back up to verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened. Crooked, okay, it's broken. Cannot be straightened and cannot be counted. It's unfixable. 
It's undecodable. You cannot get around what God has done. And then verse 18, he says, trying to, insisting that you can unravel this riddle, that you can decode life that God has made in such a way it's not decodable, leads to frustration. Do you see that? So in this first chapter, we have three already, three of the seven pieces of the riddle. Let me, let me re re revisit them. In verses 1 through 11, he's saying, life is broken. He, reiter he, <clears throat> he reiterates that in verse 15 at the very beginning, so 15a, by saying crooked. And then 15b, he says, and it's unfixable. It cannot be overcome. And then in verse 18, he says, trying to fix it, trying to decode it, is going to end in frustration. So we have four, uh, we have three uh, principles of the riddle already, and we'll have four more uh, to look at. Um, just about all of them, I'm trying to remember, I think all of them will uh, become apparent by the time we're done with chapter 3 and maybe even a little bit into chapter 4. Okay, so let's read on. We're going to read the whole chapter 2. Ready? Here we go. Um, first of all, what's going on in chapter 2? Um, if you remember uh, the outline, um, you recall that uh, in chapter 2, we call that the research, the, the writer's research, the teacher's research. And you know what? Let's back up. We actually skipped over something. So I want to stay with uh, the abstract for a little bit, and that is, I want to look at verse 2 of chapter 1. We actually skipped over that on purpose, and I almost forgot it. <clears throat> I don't know if you know much about the Psalms or if you've ever read the Psalms, but there's an interesting psalm uh, in the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 73. And Psalm 73 was written, uh, the psalm itself tells us, by... Asaph. And Asaph was a contemporary with David, King David. And Asaph was actually king, one of King David's uh, worship leaders. Uh, I think in some places he's called a musician, one of the musicians. And Asaph wrote Psalm 73, and Asaph wrote Psalm 73 in some of the same vein as does the writer Ecclesiastes. That is, God, the world looks inequitable. The things that we would think would work a certain way don't work that way. Why is that God? And so you read the whole psalm and you see his going through the process of coming to the same conclusion that the writer of Ecclesiastes will come to. But here's the important thing for, for right now. Asaph begins Psalm 73 with his conclusion. He actually begins it with his conclusion. I'm going to flip there. Psalm 73. The very first verse in Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Surely. In other words, for sure, definite. And, and, and even the hint there, if you know anything about the psalm, the hint there is despite appearances. Well, guess what? That's the summary, 
That's the conclusion that Asaph came to in Psalm 73, and he puts it at the beginning. Now, I don't know why the writers of the writer of Psalm 73 and also the writer of Ecclesiastes does that, but they both do it. And we see that in Ecclesiastes, back to Ecclesiastes. We see that in chapter 1, Ecclesiastes, verse 2. Look what he says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, what is that? Many different Bible versions uh, will have some variations there. Uh, meaningless is probably the most common. Uh, emptiness is another one. I think there are a couple more. Um, but the word in the Hebrew is Havel. Um, it's anglicized as H-E-B as in boy, E-L, but it's pronounced Havel. It's a, it's a soft B or a hard V, whichever, whichever you wish. Um, Havel. And it's an interesting word. It's a very, very interesting word. It begins in its root form and its earliest usage. It began uh, to mean to breathe out, to exhale. So, um, in our understanding, the purest form of usage of the word would have been breath, or vapor, or mist. And in fact, you'll see uh, the last two, vapor and mist, you'll see those uh, mentioned a lot in books that have been written about Ecclesiastes. And the first one, breath, you'll see that, uh, the, you'll see that translation of the word havel, in, in the Psalms. It's heavily used in the Psalms. And in fact, uh, we're going to turn there in a moment. But first, let's begin with a more recent a more recent use of the word. And that will be over in the book of James, the New Testament book of James. Wait a minute, you're saying. <laughs> the New Testament's in Greek. So how can the word Havel uh, be in, uh, the, the Hebrew word Havel be in the New Testament Greek uh, book. Well, you may recall from our last session that the Old Testament actually got into a Greek translation at some point. Um, and um, that was done, uh, well, the whole, the whole explanation of that is in the last, uh, the last uh, message. But the, the end result was uh, there is a version of the Old Testament in Greek, that's called the Septuagint. And Septuagint is quite an interesting tool. But let's go ahead and read this uh, passage. James, the book of James, which is before Peter and after Hebrews, the book of James, way toward the end of the Bible in the New Testament. And let's look at verse uh, 13, chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Well, where did James get that? Well, don't forget that the early uh, disciples and apostles all had the Old Testament. They didn't have until quite a bit later, uh, after Jesus' resurrection, they didn't have a New Testament. They had So he got that from the Old Testament. And it's an interesting thing because 
that word vapor in James 4.14 is the word in the Greek that corresponds to the Hebrew word Hevel. And it's found in the Septuagint version of, the, of Ecclesiastes. So there's another person who's used that word, that word vapor or mist. Now let's back up, and let's back up to Psalms, and we're going to look at a couple of Psalms. Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Psalms is pretty much right in the middle of your Bible. Uh, slightly to the left, but, but more or less in the middle. Depends on how many maps and things you have, I suppose. Psalm 103. And this is David, we're told, by the inscription. And David says something very interesting in Psalm 103. Let's look at verse uh, 15. He says, As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field. Sounds very temporary, doesn't it? Talking about man. So he flourishes. That is, that's the extent of his, his life, his flourishing. Pretty temporary. Verse 16, When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. Well, let's, t let's look at verse 16 uh, in more detail. When the wind, guess what? That's Havel. That's Havel. Has passed over it, it is no more, it wilts. And then the end of that, verse 16, in its place, acknowledges it no longer. That sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes, verses 1 through 11. That man just doesn't have any lasting memory or, or imprint on the world. His life is, is kind of nothing, a big nothing, taken as a whole. Let's back up, go a little earlier in time, a little earlier in history. And let's back up to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Um, the Jews have a tradition that Moses wrote this psalm and nine more, that he wrote ten psalms. We don't have to guess about this one. The inscription actually uh, ascribes it to Moses. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. And in Psalm 90, we have an interesting verse. We have verse 9, and, and actually we won't read 10, but it's, it's, a part, it's an interesting thing as well. But verse 9 for all of our days have declined in thy fury, we have finished our years like a sigh. Guess what? It's the same word, Havel. Some of your versions read there, whisper. So there you have, a breath, a breath, a sigh, a whisper, an exhalation. Moses goes on in verse 10 to expand on that a little bit. He says, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, eighty years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Yeah. Well, let's go back a little further. These are all people that are saying things the same as what the writer of Ecclesiastes has said, in many cases using the very same word, in most cases. But now let's go back all the way to, you ready? Adam. Yes, that Adam. You know, he had a wife named Eve. They had a, you know, a, uh, <laughs> they had a um, condominium over on, uh, over by the Tigris River. <laughs> well, here's Adam. 
and chapter 4. We'll start at verse 1. This is after the fall. The, the fall is described in, verse, in chapter 3. And you can read that, the fall and its, and its curse that sin brought. And that's kind of telling, the fact that this is right after that in Genesis. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. You probably have a footnote in your Bible, but it's also right in the verse that she, that she actually describes the meaning of the name. And it is got, or you could make it a little more palatable to modern ears, you can make it gift. She names the very first human being born, names him Cain. Names him Cain, and the word means gift. I've gotten, I got a gift. Verse 2, and again she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now we know the story of Cain and Abel. You may not be aware that within just a few verses, whether it's five or six, I don't think it's many more than that, Abel appears and then leaves the scene. And you know what happened to Abel. Cain killed him. But there is an interesting thing in verse 2 here. We don't have the definition of Abel's name. But if you look in the Hebrew, it is the word Havel. Yes, yes, vapor or mist or breath or you know, any of those words you want to use. What has Adam done? Or Adam and Eve, you know, what have they done? What have they done in naming Abel immaterial, vapor, mist, desolate, vacant, vacuous, hollow. What, 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 what have they done? I believe that Adam, who already knew what Cain was about by this time, and of course within just a few verses he's going to really know that Cain proves the evilness of sin in man, the first murderer, but Adam doesn't know that yet. But what he, you know, however you make the timeline, it's not important. But what Adam does is he names him, he names his second son a commentary on life after the fall. He names Abel in such a way he's saying, we had this wonderful, eternal, beautiful promise in life as it was in the beginning. And now it's gone. It's wasted. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I mean, he's not like super depressed. He's just commenting on the way life has changed. He might have been forgiven to, to have a lot of hope and have a lot of you know, positive attitude about life. But he sure had to give it up when the two sons were born. He had to give it up. He had to say, no. The reality is you cannot, you cannot pretend that life is hospitable and, and congruous and, and equitable for man. No, life is ruined. Life is bad. Man's condition, the human condition, is stark and intransigent 
and 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 ruined, spoiled. Okay, so back to Ecclesiastes. Back to Ecclesiastes. So what we have, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, once again, we have the first piece of the riddle, the puzzle, and that is life is broken. And we have Solomon commenting, or the writer uh, of Ecclesiastes, commenting on that, um, you know, in 1 through 11, and then a little bit later. The second piece of the riddle we saw was in 15, 15a, we'll say, where the writer of Ecclesiastes says the crookedness, the crookedness, the, the bentness of life. And then 15b, he says, it can't be straightened. It can't be fixed. And then the third piece of the puzzle is in verse 18 of chapter 1, where he says, trying to fix it, trying to unravel the tangle of life, trying to decode the riddle leads only to frustration. So let's go ahead and uh, get into chapter 2, <clears throat> and here we're going to start. He's done with his abstract. Now he's going into his, his um, research. Uh, a, a better, I've called this research, but I think even a better uh, name for it is his meditation. And you'll see why as we go through it. So here we go. Chapter 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards for myself, I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. And all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. This is interesting, and this is a king who had the power. We know whoever this writer was, he, it says three times in the book he, that he was a king, and that he had control over Jerusalem, and he could do whatever he wanted. He had all the resources, all the time, no one could stop him. Look what it says. What my eyes desired and my heart uh, wanted, he didn't hold back. So that's his description. And I think we get bogged down sometimes when we read this, uh, his research or his meditation. We get bogged down and we start, start you know, overanalyzing and over-dissecting, you know, the, the gardens and the harem and the silver and the gold. But here's something that happens. Verse 11, there's no paragraph break in the text and probably in most translations but there, there, there might have been because look at verse 11 thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done the labor which I had exerted and behold all was vanity and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun 
I want to stop there. We've seen this phrase under the, uh, or rather, uh, striving after wind, a few times now, and I want to I want to address that. Um, the word striving in the Hebrew, I don't recall the actual word, but it it its root or its original use was actually linked to feeding flocks, you know, flocks of sheep. So the idea there was to feed, to feed on. And so it's now used, as we look at the whole phrase there, striving after wind. What he's actually saying is feeding on nothingness, feeding on the ethereal, that which doesn't even exist. I think in a modern, um, in a modern rendering, it might be trying to survive, you know, literally subsist, survive on cotton candy. I think that's what he's saying. He's saying, I looked back on all the things my life has been, and this is an old man speaking. I looked back on my life, and I concluded that I really wasted it. And looking back on all those things I did, none of them gave me any clues to this riddle. Do you see? It's a wasted life, and it's a life that even though I went in all kinds of different directions, and we know Solomon did. We saw that in the previous messages, that he did fall. He did fall from grace. But it is believed by most conservative Bible teachers that he repented at the end of his life. He says, all these things I did gave me no, no answers. They, did, they didn't fulfill me. They didn't work. Verse 12, So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Now, beginning in verse 14, as he does in many places in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's going to talk about the very same thing that Asaph talked about in Psalm 73. And that is, as I look out in the world and I view man and their lives... You can't tell from their lives. You can't tell from their lives if they believe God or love God. And the end of them looks exactly the same. This phrase, the wise man's eyes are in his head, that means at least the wise person, the one who listens to people other than himself, which is really the biblical definition, and ultimately listens to God, the the, the best one to listen to, um, this person at least can take what he sees and actually process it into his mind and his heart. That's what the wise man's eyes are in his head means. But by contrast, he's saying the fool doesn't get beyond the seeing. The fool sees but doesn't understand. The fool sees and doesn't come to the right conclusions. And he says one fate befalls them both. What he's saying is, as already alluded to, you can't tell by looking at life, you can't tell by looking at men that there's any difference between the godly and ungodly, between the wise and the fool. Verse 15, Then I said to myself, As the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, This too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life. Now he's getting, he's coming to the end of his, his research or his meditation. He's going to say, I hated 
and I despaired. Verse 17, So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous. That word there is evil. Evil. And he's going to say it like three or four times just in those few verses. It was grievous, he says to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor which I had done, uh, which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Verse 20, Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he goes to his, he leaves his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil, he says. Verse 22, For what does a man get in all his labor and all his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind is not rest. This too is vanity. He's just addressing that same thing that he was talking about in chapter 1, and that is man scurries around, he's busy, you know, his busyness, you know, I mean, that's the, that's the condition of man. He has to be doing something, mankind. And he says it's all for naught. Nothing really comes of it. And in fact, even, you know, the person who becomes a CEO and, and gets his company on the stock exchange and, and has a wing of a hospital named after him, when that guy dies... Even that, even that legacy disappears within, easily within a generation and usually within a few years. He says nothing really lasts when it regards man. It just doesn't last. It's not very impactive. And he'll go on from here. And so we have verse 24 next. And verse 24 is extremely important. If you're a Bible marker, you should mark verse 24. Verse 24 is where he stops whining. I mean, he's not really whining, is he? He's giving the... He, he's saying what everyone knows. I mean, even even Shakespeare in, in his play Macbeth said the same thing. Everyone knows this. We saw James and David and Moses and Adam, and, and you can go on and on and on. Everyone knows there's something wrong with life. Life is broken. Something's not quite right. Man lives a life that's beneath him. It's beneath him. But he's going to stop now. Now, he will bring up vanity, and he will bring up striving after win a few more times, but you'll see them in the context. He's not really whining anymore. He's not really grousing, if he ever was, which I don't believe he was, as I say. He's just setting the stage, and he's explaining what everyone knows. Everyone knows that life is not what it ought to be. It's not right. It's messed up. Life is messed up. So verse 24, pivotal verse, pivotal verse, very, very important verse. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. There's a bunch of important things about this verse. Number one, it's the first time he mentions God. He will mention God 32 times in this book, but this is the first time. This is the first time. It's also where he, he turns a corner. He has sounded pretty negative, hasn't he? But, you know, it's not negative in the sense of he's depressed or, you know, manic depressive. 
he's just set the stage, as I've said. But now he goes positive. And in fact, the next three, you know, these three verses at the end of this chapter are all positive. And he pretty much stays that way. Although, like I say, he, he makes a foray into vanity and striving after win a few more times. But again, they're in certain contexts. Here is what he's doing. He's saying, you have a choice. This is the way life is. Life is broken. Life is a curse and, and an insult to man. And God made it this way. And it is something that's unable for us to unravel. We can't unravel it. And so he says the answer is to not continue in frustration, to not continue in indignation, which is a word he'll come up with three or four times in the book, or vexation, same thing. But the answer is to give in and accept and be content with the life God has made with the life that you live. Yes, with all its impermanence, with all its inequities, with babies dying and calamities befalling people, and and people you would think would be, you know, in God's fandom, you know, dying early, and people who are wicked and, you know, whatever extent you want to describe, live long lives. By the way, this is described in Psalm 73. He says, despite all that, the answer is to let God be God. To let God be God. Look at verse 25. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? He's saying life is a gift. Life itself is a gift. Yes, it's ruined. Yes, it's void and desolate and spoiled. But it's still a, it's still a gift. And he'll, he'll hit on that some more later. Verse 26. For to a person who does good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, by the way, how do you get good in God's sight? Bible students know. Faithful Christians know. There's only one way to become good in God's sight. We'll come back to that at a later point. He has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after win. He's saying, God has given us choice. He's given us choice. You can respond to what he's done in the world with acceptance and with contentment. And he'll tell us many times to cultivate contentment. And with letting God be God, giving God the right to do what He did, and when you make that choice, you'll make a you will have you will make one of two choices. You'll either become more cynical and more indignant. And that's the sinner. That's the person he's describing as the sinner. Or you'll become humble and accepting and content with God, and that's the person he's saying who is good in His sight. Now, when he says when he says vanity and striving after win, he's saying the fact that some men choose, because that's the, the 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 second half of verse twenty six, is the man who chooses to not accept it. That's vanity. That's just that's just making the world go round even more with more vanity, more more inhospitality, more starkness, more barrenness, and that is indeed vanity. 
Okay, well, I hope that's uh, been uh, instructive. I hope you uh, are getting excited about the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I can't promise you that it will, you know, be, be something you'll, you know, want to, you know, see on, you know, on cable TV or, you know, anything like that. But it is an interesting book. It is a very interesting book, and it's not what we have often thought it to be. I'm going to give you a little bit of a preview of what's coming next, and that is in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is mostly about the sovereignty of God. Mostly about the sovereignty of God. And uh, as I said, uh, before we even get partway into chapter 4, we're going to have all seven of the keys to, or the descriptions at least, the, the points, the, the pieces of the riddle. As I said, the riddle has seven points. And what better way to begin describing this riddle, which, by the way, is his thesis. This is his thesis, beginning with chapter 3. Chapters 3 and 4 are his thesis. What better way to begin his thesis than by beginning it with a description of God's godness? Yes, that's what the first half of chapter 3 and uh, to some degree the second half of chapter 3 gets into the most, and that is the sovereignty of God, the right for God. Do you see why this follows? Because he's just said that I discovered after thinking about all these things that God has given us a choice to accept or not accept. And what you are going to accept or not accept is that God is God and God has a right and you need to give him that right. And you give him that right by realizing that he is God and you are not. And that's how chapter 3 opens up. So stay tuned, and um, I hope that um, you're as excited as I am about this and that you are actually seeing the good in this book, not the negative, not the bad, presumed bad, presumed negative, but the actual good. And um, we'll be back at it, uh, back at you with that, and um, take care.